Today we're in uh, Genesis chapter 42, and you're going to need a Bible, and if you don't have one, we'd be glad to give you one. Just slip up your hand. We've got ushers who would be glad to hand out a Bible. Just slip up your hand. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 42. If you take a bridge Bible, it's going to be on page 32, Genesis chapter 42. On March 18th, 1937, in New London, Texas, the worst school disaster occurred in American history. At 3.17 p.m., Lemmy Butler, the shop teacher, turned on an electric sander in shop class. A spark from the electric sander ignited a natural gas leak that killed 297 people, most of them students. The explosion occurred because the school board wanted to cut the heating costs. The school board canceled their contract with a natural gas company. Then they hired plumbers to run a pipeline from the neighboring oil field because they had oil in Texas. Uh, And this was an oil field and this was a boom town. This uh, natural, and what they did was they they took the neighboring uh, gas from the... Um, it it was the residue from the gas line. And what they did in the the oil field was they just burned it off. You've seen flames at an oil field sometimes. Well, so what they were doing is they were sort of pirating this natural gas. It wasn't legal. It wasn't authorized. But the oil company really didn't care. So they had a long gas line come from the neighboring oil field to the school. And underneath the school was a very large um, crawl space, and that filled with natural gas, and it was ignited all at once one day. Several days ahead of time, um, several of the students complained of headaches. Nobody knew why. But the way the school board figured out how to do their natural gas, it made it free to them. Natural gas in its raw form is odorless. In 1937, the gas leak in the New London school was odorless. The one good thing that happened as a result of the explosion in 1937 was that the Texas legislature mandated that all oil companies in Texas begin to put an odorant into the gas, uh, into their natural gas so that a gas leak could be detected by smell. Uh, This practice has spread worldwide from the New London school disaster in 1937. So that's one little tidbit. If you don't remember anything else I say, you're going to know why there is an odorant in natural gas. So instead of having a deodorant, we need an odorant because an odorant can warn us. Someone has said that guilt is like an odorant. Guilt is like an an odorant because it can warn us of trouble. Guilt can warn us of some things that are not right. Guilt can show us that something is not right in our relationship with people and in our relationship with God. By the way, do you think guilt is good? We just have a tendency to think guilt is bad, and I want to stay away from it. 
want you to change your view of guilt because it can be a very important clue that things are out of whack and we need to do something soon. Uh, There is a true moral guilt. True moral guilt comes when we violate one of God's standards and we become aware of it. Now, that's normal and healthy when we experience true moral guilt. There is also false guilt that comes from someone placing standards on us that are not consistent with God's standards. Sometimes we just plain condemn ourselves. So what do we do with guilt? What do you do with guilt? Do you just ignore it? Do you deny it or cover it up? Uh, Or do you take it to God and ask for clarification? God, is this true guilt? Have I I sinned against you? Um, Today, we're going to be talking about guilt. How does that feel? We're going to talk about guilt. We're going to talk about denial. We're going to talk about cover-up and forgiveness And the passage is Genesis 42. Um, You remember, as we left off, Joseph was in prison, and he was called upon to to, uh, interpret two dreams uh, of the Pharaoh. The dreams were a message from God warning Pharaoh that there were seven years of abundance coming to the land of Egypt, and there would be seven years of a great famine that would come to the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh placed Joseph in charge of the administration of this 14-year project, and it became uh, and Joseph became second in command to Pharaoh, and he was the acting gov- governor. So we left off our story at Genesis 40, or excuse me, Genesis 41, verses 56 and 57. Hope you can see that. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. Next slide. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. The God of the universe orchestrated the weather conditions so that the world would come to Joseph. And uh, that's our setting today. Uh, If you have a program, uh, please follow in your outline. uh, Number one, uh, chapter 42, verses 1 through 5, providing for the family because there's a famine in the land and there's going to be a need. The need is in verse 1 and 2. When Jacob learned, verse 1, there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? This is what I love about the scriptures because it just tells it like it is. This is. They don't gloss over what happened here. Here are these adult men, the sons of Jacob, and Jacob says to them, why are you just sitting around? And he, he goes on to say, uh, I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Guys, what are you thinking? Now, this is kind of sad because these are adult children. They all have families. Why are they just sitting around? Well, I'm kind of guessing it's about his parenting style. He has never equipped them. He has not delegated authority to them to do anything. He's the one sitting there. They're waiting for him to tell them what to do, to go down to Egypt, to get the food, do the family business. And, uh, you know, Jacob is kind of a controlling guy. 
And so why do you just keep looking at each other? And then a trip in verses 3 through 5. Then of one of Joseph's brothers went down to buy, excuse me, then 10 of Joseph's brothers. What, how many? 10. How many brothers are there? 11. Okay. Look at verse 4. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others. Why? Because he was afraid that harm might come him. By the way, Benjamin is a man. He's not a kid anymore. Benjamin is an adult. And Jacob doesn't want to put Benjamin in a difficult situation. And so we'll just send the other 10. But I'm going to save one back. I'm going to uh, protect my favorite. Jacob believed that Joseph was dead. Remember, Joseph was the favorite son. And Joseph was the son of Jacob's favorite wives. So you can't play favorites with your wives. You can't play favorite with your kids. That's, see, that's the, that's the problem. It's way complicated when you get that many people involved. And we said how this was a, this was a blended family, but not the normal blended family. Um, and so there's this favorite son now, Benjamin. So t- 10 of the sons trekked to Egypt. And uh, in verses 6 through 17, um, encountering dysfunctional family members encountering dysfunctional family members because this is the Bible's best-known dysfunctional family. The the confrontation is in verses 6 through 9. Look at verse 6. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land. God had orchestrated Joseph's life that he would be there at this time and he would be the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. When Joseph's brothers arrived... They bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Now, think about this picture. There's Joseph, the governor of the land, the second most powerful man in all of Egypt next to Pharaoh, and his brothers are bowing down, face down to the ground. What just happened? You remember? I see you don't. Verse 7, as soon as Joseph Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. Now, Joseph is their brother, but he's also the governor of the land, and he's putting on his governor's hat right now, and he recognizes his brother. And they respond from the land of Canaan. And the reason they came was to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Now, how could that be? This is a brother. How do they not recognize him? Well, Joseph is like like an Egyptian hunk right now. He's a powerful guy. He's got everything that he needs. He doesn't have long hair, and he doesn't have a long beard, and he's not speaking Hebrew. He's speaking Egyptian. And we're going to see in just a little bit that he has an interpreter. So there, he's speaking to them in Egyptian through an interpreter. And he's not dressed like them. And guess what? They think he's dead. They're not looking for Joseph. Do you think Joseph was watching for his family to come from Canaan someday to buy food? And here it is. And they have just bowed down before him. And then, verse 9, 
he remembered his dreams about them. Let's look at Genesis 37, verse 5. Remember this? This was the first week. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. Next slide. We were binding the sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheep sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Next slide. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he'd said. Joseph was 17 years old. That's 22 years ago from the time the brothers come to Egypt. And they have bowed down to him. Then he remembered his dreams, verse 9. And said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. Um, and then he, um, he's going he's, he's to test them here. And then verses uh, 10 through 17 is the cross-examination. What do you think was going through Joseph's mind when his brothers came? How many brothers? Ten. Well, there's one missing. You know where the other brother is. He doesn't. Is his other brother, is Benjamin alive? Did they treat Benjamin like they treated Joseph? Is he safe? Has he been abused? Has he been sold into slavery like Joseph? What about dad? Why isn't dad here? Is dad okay? And can you trust these guys? Joseph doesn't trust them. So he's kind of of, going to give them a little bit of an interrogation here. The cross-examination, verses 10 through 17. So he says... You are spies. And they say, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. That's true. Your servants are honest men. Uh Uh-oh. Is that true? I don't think so. Your servants are honest men, not spies. Um, They had deceived Joseph. They had lied to their father about Joseph. They had faked Joseph's death. They had covered it up. Verse 13, verse 12 says, No, he said to them, You have come to see where our land is unprotected. Verse 13, But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the son of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. That's true. The youngest is now with our father, that's Benjamin, and one is no more, and that's true. And Joseph has learned that his father is alive, and he has learned that his brother is with his dad. Joseph said to them, it's as I told you, you are spies. And this is how you will be tested. And so here's, he's going to test them. This is pretty significant. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Joseph wants evidence. And I think Joseph sees there's a bigger picture here. And there's going to be a need to help his family. But that's not happened yet. There's more to come. Um. Verse 16, send one of, your, one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. Joseph wants to find out the truth, the facts. If you are not, then as surely as the Pharaoh lives, you are spies. So the plan is, the test is, 10 brothers are going to be in prison. 
one brother will go back to Canaan from Egypt and he will retrieve Benjamin, the favorite son. Now, there's a little bit of tension starting to develop because that's not going to go well with dad, you know. There's going to be a problem with dad about this. Um, Verse 17, and he put them, Joseph put them in custody for three days. All 10 of his brothers he put in jail for three days. This is a kind of a cooling off period. Now, who's it a cooling off period for? Cooling off for the brothers? They certainly needed to collect their senses. But it's kind of a cooling off for Joseph, too. There's a lot of stuff going through uh, Joseph's mind about facing his past. Think about it. He hasn't seen these guys for 22 years, and they show up. What is he thinking? They, they betrayed him. They, um, they assaulted him. They had such a low view of him that they, uh, they sold him into slavery, and they uh, pretty much left him for dead as far as they were concerned. And so he put them into custody for three days. Number three on your outline, testing for truthfulness. This is the big test. Verses 18 through 28. And the test comes, is described in verses eight through 18 through 20. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. Did you catch that? What did Joseph just say? He said, I fear God. That was a big clue to his brothers. But they're not really in tune to the spiritual talk. Because this isn't the, any God that belongs to Egypt. This is the true and living God. And he's just giving them a clue. I fear God. This wouldn't be normal for, the, for an Egyptian governor to say anything like this. And he just lets this slide out. I fear God. And then he says, If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This uh, they proceeded to do. So what's happened? Well, the three days, Joseph changed his mind. Instead of nine brothers going back to Egypt, he's saying just one. Just, uh, excuse me, instead of nine brothers staying in prison, he's saying just one stay in prison. The rest go back. So he's, he's really flipping it around and he's being much more lenient with his brother, brothers here. The distress comes in verse 21. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. They mean Joseph. We saw how distressed he was, how distressed Joseph was when he pleaded with us for his life. Think about that. Your brother pleading for his life. But we would not listen. That's why this distress has come up. On us. They've been three days in jail. They've had time to think about this. What's going on? Here they are in Egypt. Now they're in trouble. And now what? Guilt. It's been there for 22 years. Guilt. This has never been dealt with. And they're starting to feel distress. This is true moral guilt. This is guilt that's coming from God. And they're, they're just kind of guessing here about this. Um, surely we are being punished. They don't say by who. They're going to give that out in just, just a minute. The blame game in verses 22 and 23. Are you familiar with the blame game where you 
Somebody, you get into some kind of trouble or something happens, and instead of taking responsibility for yourself, you blame some other person for what's happened. So uh, verse 21, they said to one another, surely we are being punished. Uh, excuse me, down to verse 22. Reuben replied, do you remember who Reuben is? Reuben is the oldest brother. Reuben is the one who tried to come up with a little plan to, to go back and get Joseph out of the pit. You know, he was trying to be the good guy out of the brothers. And so Reuben says, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? 22 years later, didn't I tell you? I was right, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. If you'd have done what I said, um, we wouldn't be in this predicament. Verse 23, they did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. Reuben feels the distress. Reuben feels the weight of this guilt. What does he do? He deflects his responsibility back to his brothers. It's, it's your fault. If you'd have done what I wanted to do. But you know what? He's just as guilty as his brothers. He was in every part of it. And he kept it. He told the lie to his father. And he kept this secret for 22 years. And there we see they did not realize. So they're talking in Hebrew in front of Joseph. And they don't realize he understands exactly what they're saying. Because Joseph... The Egyptian governor had been speaking through an interpreter. In verses 24, uh, verse 24, the emotions come flooding to Joseph. He turned away from them and began to weep. What's that about? He's all of a sudden, he's encountered his brothers. He's encountered the past. They hated him. They thought about putting him to death. They sort of talked about that in front of him. Finally, they sold him into uh, slavery. And he's flooded with emotion. Perhaps it's sadness. Perhaps it's grief. Perhaps it's relief. This has all come back. And perhaps it's all of them together. Then he gets it together uh, in verse 24. But then he turned back and he spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. That's reality. He takes one of the brothers. He takes Simeon, um, puts him in probably chains right there in front of them. That's like real. So this is really happening. One of the brothers is going to be put in chains and they're going to have to follow through on um, what, what Joseph has asked for. And um, Simeon is bound up and taken away, just like Joseph was bound up and taken away in front of their eyes. The orders come into verses 25 and 26. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain. Now look at this. To put each man's silver back in his sack. This is a double blessing from Joseph to give them provisions for their journey. And after this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and they left. So Joseph sends them off. And he gives them what they asked for, and then he gives them back their money. That's a double blessing. That's, a, that's good, isn't it? Verse 27 and 28, the discovery. At, at that place, they were stopped for the night. One of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of the sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here's my sack. That's good, right? This is possibly a problem. How did he get the silver? Who's going to believe him? 
that the silver was just in the sack. And it says uh, in, in, the ne- in the next uh, sentence, their hearts sank and they turned to each other, trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? That's guilt. They're in distress. They're feeling the weight of their sin. God was at work. God knows what they have done. God knows their guilt. And they believe that God is now going to make them suffer the consequences for their actions. A reminder from us comes from uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. As we think about how does God work in our lives and what about true moral guilt? And one of the reminders is, by the way, this is, please do not view guilt as necessarily bad, okay? It's a warning. For the word of God is living and active. I love that about the Bible. It's not just a static old historical text. It's alive. It's vital. It's uh, full of life. Um, It enables us to thrive spiritually. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Well, God's word has a, a role of discerning, bringing discernment to my life and evaluating my life and at times bringing judgment to my life because that's what I need. The the idea of judgment is drawing the lines, you know, giving clarity to what's right and what's wrong. Verse 12, or verse 13, next verse. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And just like in uh, Joseph's day, in our day, nothing is hidden from God. We just need to remember that. And he works, and he sometimes, to get our attention, brings true moral guilt when we have violated his standards. Now, um, that's good because we can get resolution, because we can get forgiveness, and we can get restored, and we can get right with God. But there is a reason for guilt. And I hope you won't view guilt as always bad. Okay, so a passage like this, uh, for, uh, Hebrews 4.12 and 4.13, um, you know, encourages me. I just need to come to God o- openly and ask God, is everything okay? If I've, if I've gotten out of the lines here, have I been coloring out of the lines? There's something you want to point out to me. Um, to ask God to show me if I've sinned against him. Um, and, you know, there's a human aspect where we just like to deny or cover up or act like it didn't happen. But uh, what I want to encourage you to, to do is to be proactive, be intentional in keeping short accounts with God. So, hey, if, you're sin- if you've sinned, that you're human, um, you've, as in your walk with God, you've fallen down. So just get back up and confess your sin. Number four, distressing over the past 29 through 38. The report, verses 29 through 34. 
So the brothers return home to dad. Now they must give a report to dad. Verse 29, when they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. They said, the man who is Lord over the land. That's a pretty high view of Joseph. The man who is Lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. You know, he could have executed his brothers. If Joseph wanted revenge, it would have been real easy to pull that off as the governor of the land. Verse 31. uh, But we said to him, we are honest men, Dad. You know, we've never deceived you. Verse 32. We were 12 brothers, sons of one father. One is no more. The youngest is now with our father in Canaan. By the way, this is going to make Jacob nervous. They have given too much information You know that secretiveness about dysfunctional families sometimes? They've given out too much information to the governor of Egypt about the family because, hey, there's Benjamin back home. They've told the governor of Egypt about Benjamin, and that's going to put Jacob in distress. Verse 33, the man who was lord over the land said to us, this is how... I will know whether you are honest men. This is a test. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for your starving households and go, but bring your youngest brother to me, and I will know that you are not spies, but honest men. This is how Joseph is is connecting with his family, finding out the truth. He's going to learn more about the presence of Benjamin if they bring Benjamin back. And then Joseph says, then I will give your brother back to you. And you can trade in the land. Everything's going to be okay. You're going to be free. You're going to be able to go around in the land. You can buy and sell. You do whatever you want to do. So that's the deal that Joseph made. Complications, verse 35. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Now they are scared to death. Now... They're really feeling the weight of their sin, the guilt. It's causing distress. Instead of being blessed by Joseph, it looks like they have stolen from Joseph. At least that's how it's going to appear. And they could be accused and charged and executed for stealing from Joseph. Verse 36, the blame game continues. Their father Jacob said to them, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. He's just assuming assuming Simeon is probably dead. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Oh, I have such a hard time. Think about this. Jacob blames his sons for his grief. Jacob makes the focus about him. Jacob is not concerned with the difficulty that that his sons are facing or how to help them in this predicament. If there are things that need to be made right, Jacob hasn't been concerned about this. Here's a question I have for you. Is your default mode to blame other people when you're under stress and life is not perfect? Is that a default mode where you just try to figure out why you're in this predicament? It's probably not about you. It's probably because somebody else said something or did something, and now it's hard for you. 
the proposition, verse 37. Then Reuben said to his father, remember Reuben, the oldest son, you may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you, if I don't bring back Benjamin. Entrust him, entrust Benjamin to my care and I will bring him back. This is bold. This sounds courageous. This sounds like leadership. No, it doesn't. This is a son who's trying to win his father. Notice what he just said. You could put my sons to death. That's stupid. What if his, it wouldn't surprise me if his sons overheard that. It's family, you know, they're all back with family now. You would want your kids, you would want people to think you would give up your kids over some kind of failure or mistake? You're going to sacrifice your kids? What value do they have? You know, how's that going to affect them growing up? Yeah, my dad just traded me off. Um, So, verse 38, last verse, the dysfunctional parent. But Jacob said, my son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey, you are take. Uh, if harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my, down my gray head to the grave in sorrow. So, he's, so J, this is how we're going to end here today. Uh, Jacob says, "My son's not going to go. I'm not going to let Benjamin go. Uh, life is about me and my happiness and my comfort and comfort, and I'm not going to let Joseph. I'm not going to let Benjamin go." Okay, how about some lessons? We'll pick this up next week. Have four lessons. Number one, don't show favoritism with your children. Don't show favoritism. Now, we already saw that the very first week in Genesis chapter 37. Jacob showed favoritism with Joseph. Um, his, his brothers resented Joseph. They hated Joseph because Joseph was a favorite. He got special clothing. They attempted to kill him. They sold him into slavery. Now, then Jacob just switched. He switched from Joseph to Benjamin. Then Benjamin became the favorite son, and he got special treatment. And the brothers knew that. And that left 10 adult men floundering for their own identity. Not being affirmed by dad, not being equipped by dad. And um, now here they are, adult men, and they're just kind of floundering along. Um, so don't show favoritism, James 2.9 reminds us. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Second uh, lesson, you cannot bury the past. You must deal with the past. Joseph's brothers did not deal with the past. Uh, They had a secret sin. They had a great conspiracy that involved assault and battery and kidnapping. And this was the big elephant in the room in their family for 22 years. The past will find you out. Either you will be exposed by people or God will eventually um, bring up your own responsibility. It just may be that it's just going to percolate to the surface. Now, if something's happened to you about your past, it's still probably, if you've been offended or harmed, it's still probably going to percolate, can't think of a better word, to the surface. And that's usually what happens in our middle years, our 30s and 40s and 50s. Just Things that happen just keep coming back up because they need to be dealt with. And I think it's kind of a design of God to help us process our lives. Um, 
And so um, if there's something you haven't dealt with in your past that you need to ask God forgiveness for, you need to do that to get released from it. If there's something that is in a relationship in your past that you've harmed somebody, hurt somebody, and you haven't sought forgiveness, you need to do that. Or it may be that you've been hurt in your past um, and it wasn't your fault. You need to give forgiveness. And that needs to happen first with you and God about forgiving a person who has harmed you. Now, that's really, to forgive means to release, to let go, to loose. So what we do sometimes, if somebody's offended us, it's like, oh man, I've been hurt really bad. And it's true. And so one thing about being hurt is to to validate it. It's true. It was bad. It did hurt. It was awful. It was a terrible sin. It should have never happened. But what I don't need to do is to keep it right, this hurt right here all of my life. It needs to be healed. And part of that is that I need to forgive the person or people who have harmed me. Now, let me say something really clear here. To forgive does not mean you have to trust them. It doesn't mean you have to have an intimate relationship with them. It just means you need to forgive and let it go. Now, the text doesn't tell us, but Joseph had already forgiven his brothers. He wouldn't have been able to do what he did if he hadn't let it go. So, um, you cannot bury the past. You must deal with the past. Uh, Number three, God's forgiveness brings healing to your past. Um, So, you may need to receive God's forgiveness or you may need to extend forgiveness to someone else. I like the um, quote from Corey Ten Boom. Forgiveness is the key which unlocks the door of resentment. See, Joseph could have hated his brothers for 22 years. It could have burned him up. It could have been bitter about it. Okay? That wouldn't have helped him. You know, God wouldn't have been with him for 22 years, taking him through the difficulties if he had had this resentment. Forgiveness is the key which unlocks the door of resentment and the handcuffs of hatred. It breaks the chains of bitterness and the shackles of selfishness. Now, it's really sad when somebody has offended you or hurt you and wronged you. But um, if you don't forgive, you begin to make it that hurt about you. It's, it's my hurt. I'm just going to feel bad about it. And, I'm, you know, I'm just going to keep it right here and keep it close. I'm just going to keep feeling bad and... I really don't want to deal with it. I don't want to be healed. I don't want to be healthy. I just want to be angry and think bad thoughts about that person who hurt me. Um, So let me just say it one more time. To forgive someone doesn't mean that you have to trust them. People get confused about that. Sometimes they think, well, if I'm a Christian, if I've forgiven, I should become best friends. No, you don't have to become best friends. I'll tell you what, Joseph is forgiving his brothers, but he does not trust them. They don't deserve trust. There are people who have harmed you. They don't deserve to be trusted, but you still need to forgive them. James 5.16 says, 
Confess your, it, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Confession is an important part of healing uh, our relationship with God, our relationship with other people, and sometimes our relationship with ourselves. if I can say that. Sometimes we don't forgive ourselves. It's a big problem we deal with. Ephesians 4.32, be kind uh, and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ, just as in Christ God forgave you. And when you think about this, you know, Jesus forgave you. Jesus forgave me for my sin. I didn't deserve it. You don't deserve it. Now, if Jesus forgave you for your sin, who are you not to forgive somebody of sin? Now, the problem here is when we don't forgive, we're setting ourselves up in God's role and we're withholding as if we have the right to not forgive. We're doing God's job, and we don't, we don't have that place. Number four, parents, this is for you. Stop blaming your kids for what they learn from you. What do you think of that? Stop blaming your kids for what they learn from you. Jacob blamed his kids for many of his problems. Um, He didn't do very well owning up to his own responsibility and his own shortcomings. Jacob's sons learned to shift the blame to others just like dad. They learned to deceive people just like dad. Jacob the deceiver who deceived his brother out of his birthright. Luke chapter 6 verse 40 says this, A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. There's a lot of good things about that, but there's also some danger. Parents, your kids are going to become like you in a lot of ways. Um, A child, when he or she grows up, will be like the one who taught them growing up. A child will be much like those adults around them who modeled how to live and how to relate and how to solve problems. They'll be like their key influencers. The Bible says the sins of the fathers will visit the children up to the third and fourth generation. Now, that's a whole other subject, but you know what? It's about, mostly about modeling. What happened in your home? What gets reproduced in your home? More is caught than taught, which means our kids do what we do, not what we say. And uh, the great thing is, and the good news is, God can change the whole thing. God can intervene and interrupt and turn it all around. It doesn't have to continue. Abuse doesn't have to continue. Dysfunction doesn't have to continue. Okay? We're going to be back at the dysfunctional family next week. And um, I'd like to pray, and we're going to, have a time for communion in just a few minutes. And one of the important things is is that we examine our lives before we share in a time of communion. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I just want to pause and thank you for the scriptures and thank you for what we can learn from the story of Joseph. And we're reminded of just how human Bible characters are just like us. They have shortcomings and and failures. And they're sometimes dishonest. 
and sometimes deceitful. And sometimes we are too. And sometimes they say things that are unwise and they say things that hurt people. They say things that devalue people and sometimes we do too. Father, I pray that um, when it comes to guilt, that we'll see it as a help, as something that grabs our attention, something, something that tips us off that we need to get right. We need to get right with you or we need to get right with people. May we um, see uh, guilt as something that comes from you, not to uh, beat us up, but to, to warn us and to help us and to move us back on track. Thank you for the story of Joseph. In Jesus' name, amen.